0: Brenton on, on his trip to uh, uh, YWAM in Florida in just a few weeks, and today's the last day that we'll be gathering those shoes, so if you bring them next time, there's a couple of dumpsters on the far parking lot, just deposit them there, okay? Um, appreciate your uh, This next Saturday, there will be a memorial service celebration of life for Helena, Helena Jean Sherman. I knew her as Jean because she's known as Nurse Jean. She became a nurse and was a nurse for many years, and she thought that people would be able to remember Jean easier than Helena, so she went by Jean, but her first name was Helena. But we'll be gathering together here at three o'clock in the afternoon next Saturday, and uh, Uh, Jean is one of those stories uh, when my grandmother was in the hospital dying of cancer. Uh, Jean was one of the nurses that my grandmother um, spoke to very directly about her relationship with Jesus Christ and Jean became part of the church here as a result of uh, grandma getting ready to go to heaven and uh, so just appreciate you coming and, and supporting the family and showing hospitality in every way uh, possible next Saturday. Before that, tomorrow, uh, we gather with Linda Erickson to finally have the Celebration of Life for Dick. Um, that will be at Riverside Park at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Don't forget the church picnic on September the 11th. You're all invited to be a part of that after the second service. We'll go across the Rainier Bridge, up the hill to the top of the hill, take a left, or go by the cemetery, go past four corners, and the next right turn into the park. This morning we come back to First John chapter two. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller shares a story of a woman in his congregation who was learning. How the grace of God is extended to us because Jesus finished the work on the cross of Calvary. And she found that receiving grace was more challenging than doing religion. And uh, he writes it this way Some years ago, I met with a woman who began coming to the church at Redeemer and had never before heard a distinction drawn between the gospel and religion. In other words, the distinction between grace and what is often a works-based righteousness. She had always heard that God accepts us only if we are good enough. She said the new message was scary. I asked why she said it was scary, and she replied, If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and would now deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by grace, there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Let me run that by you one more time. If I'm a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. What a profound thought, a profound truth. I share that story because as we come into the second chapter of John's first epistle, his, some people, we, we call it a, an epistle, but many scholars think it's just a sermon that he wrote to be distributed around the churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And because he was very perturbed, by a false teaching that had cropped up within the church, a dividing the church, a false doctrine that taught salvation was the result of a superior knowledge based on spiritual things. And, and They came to this place where they believed that because your body is irredeemable, it's sinful and always will be sinful, that you might as well do whatever you want to in your body because that didn't matter. If you knew the right thing, then you would be saved. But as we looked at chapter 1 last week, and John is writing to these people to let them know the true gospel of the message that he received from Jesus Christ, he said... We cannot continue to walk in sin and to please ourselves. If we do and say we're walking in fellowship with the Father, he said, you're a liar. Not only that, you're deceiving yourself and you're calling God a liar. If you continue to practice sin and say that you're in fellowship with God. But he said, if we confess our sin, if we walk openly before the Lord, and allow the Holy Spirit to shine into our life and convict us. And when we confess, confess of those sins that we've been convicted of, there's this ongoing cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have fellowship one with another, with the Father and with each other. Last Sunday, we concluded our time together by looking at the first couple of verses of chapter 2 because they are all interconnected because he didn't write in chapters and verses. He just wrote. But uh, as I shared with you last Sunday, John writes in a very interesting way. Um, His literary practice is different than Paul. Paul was kind of linear. He began building one truth on top of another where John kind of writes in a circular manner. It's kind of like going up a spiral staircase. We keep coming back to the same truth, but every time he comes back to the same truth, he expounds on it a little bit more. And with that thought in mind, we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 2 of 2 John, where he writes these words, My little children, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but not does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way, way in which he walked, speaking of Jesus. Remember last week, one of the most profound theological statements, and he's going to make three profound theological statements in this short letter, and they're all three letters long, or three words long. The first one is, God is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No, not at all. He's absolutely pure, he's absolutely righteous, he's holy, it's his nature, it's who he is, and there is nothing That can alter that. John wants us to understand contrary to what's being taught in that day and is being taught even today if we say we have fellowship with God then there's going to be a high degree of living righteously displayed in our lives. Not because we are earning our salvation, but because we are saved, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because we are saved, we now walk in partnership, fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. And He is holy. And Jesus said, Because the Father's holy, you be holy. Walk in righteousness. Perhaps one of the biggest hindrances to the spread of the Christian message has been the inconsistencies of those in the church. Saying one thing and living another. What do people call those people? Hypocrites. Now, none of us are perfect. We won't be until we see Jesus face to face. But between here and there, we need to walk in obedience to the word. Last Sunday, we read in chapter one, if we say we have no sin, even though we are believers, we're living a lie. We deceive ourselves. But that being the case does not give us license to continue in sin. Our goal is to live in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Our goal is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. The last verse, verse 6 said, to walk the way he walked. And that's not something John made up. These are the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then he told his disciples... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Follow me. David Jackman wrote, It is the direction in which our lives are traveling which determines whether or not our Christian profession is genuine. It is the direction in which our lives are traveling, which determines whether or not our Christian profession is genuine. As we are following Jesus, there should be an ever-increasing maturity. An ever-increasing likeness of Jesus flowing through our heart. An ever-increasing flow of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience. Maybe we should redact that one. Kindness, gentleness against such there is no law. Ever-increasing. John Newton, the slave trader, who was radically born again, I mean, if there was anybody that you would ever say, that man will never make it to heaven. But Jesus saved him. He's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. He said this, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. He understood he was on A journey up and to the right, becoming more like Christ, coming closer to Christ. In these verses we read this morning, John spells out three characteristics of authentic Christians. Christians who know Christ, Christians trust in what he's done, and Christians do what he commands. A Christian does what he commands. My intention was to cover three, we're going to cover two. So I let you go before the day's over. It starts out, my little children, my little children. I hope you read that as a ter- term of endearment from an older man writing to people who, for the most part, would have been younger than he. I think the only other place in the New Testament where we see this word for little children is used when Jesus spoke. On the night before the crucifixion to the disciples, and and there he called them little children. The only other place we find it, John uses it over and over in this epistle my little children. Remember, he's around 90, give or take. Those of you who are around 90, give or take, you still look at me and think I'm a youngster. My children think I'm a dinosaur. (laughs) You know, it's a matter of perspective. John is at this position where he looks and all those young people are children in the Lord. There's a story recorded at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century AD about John. That one day a recent convert decided to rob John, to steal from him. And he stole something from John and he began to run away. And this is how it's written in the history book. But John, forgetting his age, pursued him with all his might, crying out, Why, my son, dost thou flee from me, thine own father, unarmed, aged? Pity me, my son, fear not. Thou hast still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for thee. If need be, I will willingly endure thy death as the Lord suffered death for us. For thee I will give up my life. Stand, believe. Christ has sent me. And when the young man heard, first stopped, looked down, threw away his arms, and then trembled and wept bitterly. And when the old man approached, He embraced him, making confession with lamentations as he was able, baptizing him a second time with tears, concealing only his right hand. But John, pledging himself and assuring him an oath that he would find forgiveness with the Savior, besought him, fell upon his knees, kissed his right hand itself as now purified by repentance, and led him back to the church and making intercession for him with copious prayers and struggling together with him in continual fastings and subduing his mind by various utterances, he did not depart, as they say, until he had restored him to the church, furnishing a great example of true repentance and a great proof of regeneration, a trophy of a visible resurrection, end of quote. I read that old English to you because I wanted you to see the heart of this man as people saw him in that day. As he writes, My little children, I write this that you may not sin. I write this that you may not sin. The NIV says, I write this that you will not sin. The King James says, These things I write you that ye sin not. To walk in the light as he is in the light is to leave behind a life of habitual disobedience to the Word of God. That was contrary to the new gospel, the Gnostics. The beginning of Gnosticism was preaching that, just know the right thing and do whatever you want. It is said that when John Wesley left his home, his mother took his Bible and wrote on the flyleaf these words, and I put it in your notes. Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. This week we're going to begin reading and the Bible reading and those who are reading through the Bible in the year by the Bible calendar on the back. I think we go into Psalms 119. And at some point in that chapter we're going to read, Your Word I've hidden my high heart that I would not sin against God. As I was re- looking at this, my children, I write to you that you will not sin. My mind went back to the Apostle Paul and what he wrote to the, Ephes- or to the Romans. In chapter 5 of Romans, he expounded the grace of God. How that we are saved by faith through grace, or saved by grace through faith. And, and he comes down to the, what we call the end of the fifth chapter, and he said, where sin abounded so much more does grace abound. And then he, he anticipates somebody's thinking. Well, if more sin means more grace, let's go on sinning so that we receive more grace. And he says, God forbid, absolutely not. You've been set free from sin, now walk in grace. And then he says in verse 11 of chapter 6 of Romans, also, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. John echoes what Paul wrote decades before. My little children, do not sin. Do not give yourself to the passions of your flesh. Now, we live in this place of interesting tension. As children of God, we've been forgiven of our sins. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to empower us to live above sin. Yet, because we are still human... We are susceptible to temptation and moments of disobeying the word of God. Have you done since we gathered last? Have you been perfect? And before you answer that, you had no thoughts that you dwelled on that you should not have dwelled on. You didn't worry about anything. Remember the scripture says, not once, but over 300 times, do not be anxious about anything. How are we doing so far? And if right now you're thinking, well I'm pretty proud of myself, I was, per- I was perfect all week long, you just sinned. <laughs> the sin of pride. Remember what we read in John? First chapter, First John, if you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's why we openly walk before the Lord on a daily basis. How did Jesus teach us to pray? On a daily basis, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what's the next one? Father, forgive us. Our debts our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us walk openly before the Lord and when the Lord convicts you of an attitude an action confess it the Gnostics taught the way you live doesn't matter the Bible teaches verse 1 of Hebrews 12 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. While we understand we will not be perfect this side of heaven, the proper mindset is this, to make every effort to walk in righteousness, to make every effort, To walk in righteousness, not to get saved, but because I am saved, not to receive grace, but because I have received grace. Make every effort, be diligent, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. You won't believe all the things that go through my brain while I'm talking. As I'm talking about following Jesus and being diligent about it, my mind suddenly had a flashback to following my dad through the woods when I was ten years old. He was six foot two. I was probably only four foot tall, which meant every step that he took I had to take at least two. It didn't seem to me he was all concerned about where I was. He told me, you just keep up. <laughs> he kept trying to outwalk me because I made so much noise, and so he would walk a little faster to get away from the noise. My point is, I had to be diligent, because he took me places that there was no point in going there. We couldn't see anything but brush, but we went there Anyway. <laughs> Follow Jesus with that diligence. Don't get lost. Don't get lost. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't sin. Don't screw up. Don't mess up, he says. But know this, if you do. I don't know why he used the word if. If. I think he should have used the word when. When you do, know this, we've got a good lawyer. Notice this also, John included himself. You see how he starts with the pronoun, and he's talking that um, if anyone does sin, and then he changes to very personal, as he includes himself. We. Have an advocate. He's lived long enough, by the time he writes this message, that he understands it is very probable that believers, including himself, are going to have moments when they are less than perfect. Now, I don't know if they had tailgaters in those days. There are moments that I'm less than perfect. He knows that there are moments that we need to confess because we're not walking in the posture of fellowship. But here he says, we have an advocate. And he includes himself with everyone. He's not putting on an air of superiority because he's the apostle who saw Jesus Christ. He said, we're walking in fellowship. We're walking together. We have an advocate. I'm preaching to myself just like I'm preaching to you. He said, do not sin, but please know this, if we do, when we do, we have an advocate. We have someone to speak to the Father in our behalf. I love that to speak to the Father. He did not say we have an advocate with God Almighty. He did not say we have an advocate with God Almighty. He said we have an advocate with the Father. I like that because it tells me it's a family thing. It's a family thing. I gather together on a monthly basis with some other pastors in town. And, and uh, it's interesting how we all prayed. A little different depending on our heritage, church-wise and instruction-wise. But there is at least one pastor who begins every prayer by addressing all the magnificent attributes of God, except this one. He's our Father. Almighty God, Creator of the universe, He is those things. But our relationship goes beyond that. It's a family thing. Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. He's not a God who is wanting to bring judgment and damnation on us because of our sins. He's a father who loves us and wants nothing to interfere with our fellowship with him. Since he's holy, since he's perfect, he cannot fellowship with sin and with darkness. And there has to be an answer for that sin and the darkness. And Jesus, the righteous one, Jesus, God who became man, lived as a perfect man, then became God again. He can plead our defense before the Father. He prays before the Father on our behalf. He intercedes. Did you know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is praying for you right now? I love that. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 24 says, He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's not like Aaron who died and passed it on to his son He's like Melchizedek, no beginning and no end. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Have you ever wondered how that works? Jesus displayed it before he died on the cross and went to heaven, just how that works. You find this story in Luke chapter 2, or 22, excuse me. These are some of the events that took place leading up to the crucifixion, the, the upper room, the Last Supper. And in the course of the events that took place in that Last Supper, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus said, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He did not say, I'm going to pray that you don't fail. He did not say, I'm going to pray that you do not deny me. He said, I pray that you, your faith may not fail. He's already talked to the 12 or the 11 because Judas has already left. He's already said, all of you are going to forsake me. But Peter said this, verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And you know what? He meant that. I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I don't know about anybody else, Jesus. You might be right about these guys, but I am not going to forsake you. Verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. If you read the rest of the story in that chapter, and if you read the other three Gospels, you'll find that Peter did exactly what Jesus said. He failed. He denied knowing Jesus or ever being associated with him. We know, most of you, if you read the story, you know that he he proclaimed with oaths that means he said cross my heart hope to die type thing may the heavens open and strike me of lightning if i'm telling you a lie i did not know jesus those kind of oaths he brought down on himself you know where that denial started it was at the table It started with his self-confidence. It started with his self-confidence. Our life has to be in Christ. My confidence has to be in Christ. Not in my flesh. Not in myself. Because when I become self-confident, well, how does Proverbs say it? Pride goes before a fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. As you read the story, they go from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to go a little further into the garden and to pray with him. But when Jesus comes back to where he left them to pray, he finds them. Did you know it's always easier to sleep than it is to pray? It's always easier to sleep than it is to pray. When the temple guard came to arrest Jesus in the garden... Peter pulled out the one sword that Jesus told them to bring with them, and he cut off Malchus' ear. And the amazing thing to me is, he did that after they come in. Jesus said, "Whom do you seek?" They said, "Jesus of Nazareth." Jesus said, "I am." And what happened? They all fell backwards to the ground. They get up and brush themselves off. Whom do you seek? Jesus. And then Peter whacks off his ear. Jesus said, put up the sword. That's not the way it is. He who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. And he heals the man's ear. After Jesus was arrested, Peter followed in the darkness. And we believe that John is the one who got him led into the courtyard there, the high priest. And he stands around the fire with those who've come to see this mockery of justice and to do away with Jesus. And they begin to accuse him. Hey, you're a Galilean. Your speech betrays you. You were with him. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Three times. No, I wasn't. About the time the rooster crows, the scripture tells us that eye contact was made between Jesus and Peter. And Peter remembered what Jesus said, and his heart was crushed, and he went out and wept bitterly. But his faith did not fail. He did not lose his love for Jesus. How do I know? Because Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail. He didn't do what Judas did. He went out and wept bitterly. Tears of repentance. We have an advocate who's interceding for us. Take the time to read John chapter 21 later on today, where you see Jesus coming to the disciples, and Peter specifically, who've gone fishing. And Jesus prepares breakfast on the beach. Gives to him another miraculous catch of fish. And they understand it's Jesus. And, And Peter jumps out of the boat and pulls the net and comes to the shore. And while they're having breakfast, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know, feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these? Feed my lambs. And the third time, and it grieved him. And he said the third time, you know why it grieved him? In my opinion, it was suddenly Peter made the connection I denied him three times. But Jesus reassured him three times that he'd been forgiven because Jesus prayed for him before it happened that his faith would not fail. We have an advocate. The Father's praying for you. The Son is praying for you. There's prayer going on at the throne of God today for you. We have an Advocate with the Father. Point number one, that's the introduction. Christians know who Jesus is. Christians know who Jesus is. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does, we have an Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Jesus is his name. Christ is his position. Really, it should be Christ Jesus. But Jesus Christ, righteous. He is Jesus. He is Jesus. You say, yeah, well, duh. The fact that he has the name Jesus anchors for us that he is a real person in the history of the world. He's not a figment of imagination. He's not a myth. He was a real person who existed, and people who've tried to prove that he did not exist cannot prove that because there's way too much history that proves that Jesus Christ was here in the flesh. But more than that, the name Jesus introduces us to his purpose for being here as a man. The name Jesus introduces us to his purpose for being here as a man. The angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. She will bear a son Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means he's the savior. He will save his people from their sins. He's Jesus Christ. I said that is the title. That's his position. The anointed one the Messiah. He's Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that was prophesied for the very first time back in Genesis, when God said to to, uh, the serpent that you're going to crush the seed of woman, but the seed of woman is going to crush your head. That's the first declaration that there's an anointed one coming that he's going to be the Messiah. Jesus spent most of his ministry trying to reframe the Jewish people's understanding of the Messiah because they were looking for a conquering king who would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and set them up as the world-dominant power and that they would reign with power and authority over all the nations. Jesus wanted them to understand the kingdom of God is not here on earth but it was a kingdom being created within the hearts of people. Jesus wanted them to understand that uh, not only was he a son of the line of David, but he was David's Lord. In Mark 12, 35, 36, and 37, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is a son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng hurt him greatly. Let me tell you what Jesus just said to these Jewish teachers who were standing there and understood. In fact, what he said here is what gets him crucified. Jesus was claiming supernatural origin. In fact, he was claiming to be supernatural in the fact that he existed before. Time was. That he was the one that the Lord said to the Lord, sit here at my right hand. Yes, he was a man born to Mary in Bethlehem. But he was also God who existed before the world began. This right here, he's claiming to be the Son of God the righteous one. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The NIV puts the righteous one. How important this truth is. The golden thread that runs between the fact that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and Jesus, the Son of Man, is this. He's the righteous one. Because he is and was and is one with God, and as Jesus the man, he was born of the Virgin Mary. And I know I harp on that, but it's a foundational doctrine that my salvation is totally dependent upon. He was born of a virgin, Adam's bloodline did not flow in his veins. He was born sinless, unlike you and I. He lived a sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all ways just like we are, yet without sin. It's his righteousness that qualifies him to be our advocate with the Father. It's his righteousness that qualifies him to be our advocate with the Father. Notice it does not say Jesus Christ the merciful one, Jesus Christ the loving one. Jesus Christ the compassionate one, Jesus Christ the tender one. The issue here is sin. Sin as opposed to righteousness, sin as opposed to the sinless one. We are in relationship with a righteous God. How can he forgive us when we have sinned? On what basis does God offer you and I forgiveness? It is on the basis of Christ Jesus, the sinless one, the righteous one. Our forgiveness is based upon him, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the sinless one. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Again, if anyone sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An authentic Christian does not make any false claims about his perfection, nor does he or she have a blasé, careless attitude about his or her behavior, believing that sin does not matter. An authentic Christian, with gratitude, recognizes that when they do sin, their case is not hopeless. Thank God. We have an advocate with the Father. The very presence of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ever praying on our behalf, guarantees there's a place of forgiveness and restoration is secure. Number two, point number two Christians trust what God did. Authentic Christians trust what God did. Verse two He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, 12-letter word. Spelling test next week. (laughs) It's not a word we use in our culture. The only place I've ever heard the word used is when we're reading some of the translations of the Bible, the King James and the English Standard Version. Some of the newer translations, like the NIV, the New Living Translation, some of the others, they substitute the word atone or atoning sacrifice. But when the scholars of the English Standard Version began to look at the original Greek and trying to decipher exactly what John was trying to say, they went back to the word propitiation that's in the King James Version. The word propitiation has this real connotation to it, that he's the one who turns aside God's wrath by taking away our sin. He turns away God's wrath by taking away our sin, the propitiation, an offering that takes away wrath. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, there's a consistent principle, more than that, an unbending divine law. The wages of sin is death. To break God's laws, his commands, is a capital offense. And the only way that God can be a God of righteousness, a God of justice, a God who forgives, that penalty has to be paid. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. A quote from the Old Testament. God said, without the shedding of blood, sin cannot be forgiven because righteous justice demands payment has to be made. As loving as God is, His righteousness does not allow him to look away and say, it'll be okay. There has to be a price paid. God demands punishment. Sin and God are not compatible. They cannot exist together. Sin separates man from God. God's wrath must be poured out on sin. Now, over the centuries, part of the reason you don't see propitiation in some of the new translations is scholars have a a hard time with the concept of a God of wrath. A God of wrath. And they have a hard time with this word propitiation being used in the Holy Scripture because it is a word that comes from idol worship. And if you read about the idols, there were many times that... You know, if a storm happened, they would bring some kind of sacrifice to appease the God of the storms, Baal. And was a that we got to bribe this God in order to get his favor. And so some people did not want to bring that word from the cults or the idol worship into this concept. But listen, the scripture talks very clearly about the wrath of God. Somebody said that's Old Testament. No, no, no. Look at John three, thirty-six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. How many believe? There's six of us going to heaven. How many of us believe? I picked up four or five more. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's a day that the wrath of God will be poured out like beyond our comprehension. The Scripture says that this planet will be consumed in fire, the fire of God's wrath. God's right, righteousness demands His wrath be poured out on sin. So what was God going to do about that? John three sixteen For God so loved the world. He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let me see if I can give you a word picture of what it means that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Let's imagine. Did you hear this? Imagine. Your sanctified imagination. What I'm going to say is not literal, so don't go away saying I said this, this is the way it happened. But it's a word picture. When we are moved by the Spirit and want to repent and we want forgiveness, we have to come to a table at the gate of heaven and register. Name, please. Bob? What's your most awful sin? And remember this imagination. (laughs) I stole some money from my boss. The assistant to the accountant there takes a name tag and with a marker writes on their embezzler and slaps it on Bob's chest. Next, name please. Mary, what's your most awful sin? I slandered some people. I didn't like them, so I spread lies about them all around. The assistant marks on the name tag, slanderer, slaps it on Mary's chest. Go wait in line. Next, please. I pick these names randomly, but there are some of you. George, what's your most awful sin? I coveted my neighbor's Porsche. The assistant writes, coveter, slaps it on his chest. Next, Gordon, what's your most awful sin? Adultery. And the assistant writes on the name tag, adulterer, and slaps it on his chest. Take your place in line, and on and on it goes until your name is called, and you stand before the Lord, and you give your most awful sin, and you have a name tag slapped on you. Then Jesus steps up to the register's table. Name, please. Jesus. What's your most awful sin? I have none. Well, then, you enter right on into the kingdom if you have no sin. You're free to enter in. But instead, Jesus starts walking down the line. Gordon, may I have your name tag? and he slaps it on himself. George, may I have your name tag? George gives it to him. Now he's got adulterer, coveter, on Jesus' chest. Mary, give me your name tag. And now he has slanderer. Bob, give me your name tag. Now he has embezzler on down the line until he is totally covered with name tags of your sin and my sin. And when the accuser stands before the Father and said, they're all guilty, they're all guilty, and the Father says, you're right, I sentence them to death. Jesus steps forward with our name tags from head to toe. He said, Father, let's take their punishment. Let's shed my precious blood. On a cross of crucifixion. My blood is perfect. It's sinless. And our demand for punishment. Will be met by our sacrifice. Second Corinthians 5.21. You say. That's kind of a crazy story. But look at Second Corinthians. For our sake. God made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you want to see the wrath of God? Look at the cross as it's poured out upon Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, I want you to hear this. God himself paid our penalty. God himself paid our penalty in full. In full. The cross is not a matter of God's wrath being poured out on an innocent third party, the Son. Remember, the Father and the Son are one from eternity past, eternity in the future. Jesus, Father, you and I are one. They made that plan before the foundation of the world. That God himself would become flesh Remember, his name will be called Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God paid the penalty. And now Jesus, who is God, prays for you every day that. You might not sin. And if you do sin, that you'll just open it up before Him and confess it so He can say, it's paid for. It's under the blood. The hymn writer had it right. Jesus paid it all. You know what the next line is? So all to Him I owe. Verse 2, chapter 2. He's the propitiation for our sin. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does that mean everybody's saved? Oh, no. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, though, is sufficient for everyone, for everyone, everyone, who will put their faith in Him. Everyone. The sins of the whole world, He paid the price for everybody. Everybody. But not everybody is going to accept the payment. He gave us a free will. Salvation, though paid for, is not automatic. There has to be that moment where I repent. Where I confess with my mouth, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross and God raised him from the dead. And I am declaring him to be the Lord of my life. I am declaring that I understand I am not my own. He purchased me with his precious blood on the cross of Calvary. Romans 6.23 said, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, free to us, but it costs God everything, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you received that gift? Today is an awesome day to do that. This is an awesome moment to do that. We're going to pray in a moment. First, I want to stand and sing the song we sang a little earlier at the cross. I surrender. I surrender.